Turn to Revelation chapter 7 as we settle in. Okay, Genesis House, why don't we stand together? And we'll read 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds on the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth, or on the, set, on the sea, or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cried out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and Wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Well, these who are clothed in the white robes, uh, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will there any sun be on them, or will it beat down on them for any heat, or nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Please be seated. Last week, in, at the end of chapter 6, we ended with a really important question. It was found in verse 16, or verse 17, I should say, and it came from the unbelieving world at the time of Christ's return. And the question from them was this, when Christ comes to judge and bring his wrath, who will be able to stand? And the unbelieving community, the world at that time, saw themselves as being hopeless and based on their, that question, saw really that no one probably could be able to stand. At least that's what they thought in their summation. Now, when we, were, when we were at the end of the sermon, we were kind of left in suspense as we'd run out of time to answer that question. So today, in this sermon this morning, we're going to seek to provide the answer to that very question in John's vision. Before we dive in, though, let me just say this to you. This has got to be one of the most confusing chapters in all of Revelation. And if you didn't figure that out in the reading, 
then uh, please take my place and I'd gladly sit there. <laughs> You'd think when the question was asked, who would be able to stand, the question would be straight, that's a straightforward question, therefore it'd be a straightforward answer. But when you read this, it seems convoluted and all over the place and very difficult. And so the result in the Christian community has been a massive debate. The 144,000 are this. No, they're not. They're this. No, they're not. They're this. The great multitude, that they represent those people in this time and in this situation, and so on. And we have these divisions. So Gordon Fee, in his commentary, was right when he made this comment. This section of Revelation has had an especially unfortunate history of interpretation. I'm going to do my best to not join Gordon Fee's club this morning, <laughs> okay? But I will say this, I wished I had at least another week to prepare for today, but time was not on my side. Seven days goes pretty quick, plus the women's retreat and an hour forward. So, uh, yeah, I probably would like to re-preach this in a month from now or two months from now. I might even make subtle changes. So I come to this with humility, but at the same time, I think we can get the big picture of what John's saying. And the way we do that is by continuing down the same line we've been right from the beginning, right from the first sermon we preached on this. And so I want to make three points by way of introduction. The first thing we have to remember again, like a, like a broken record, this is apocalyptic genre. The images, the numbers, the symbols are not meant to be taken literally. What you're to do is look for the spiritual truths that are found within these images and numbers and so on. Even today, I, we can demonstrate this from the text. You'll notice in verse 1, it talks about uh, the angel standing on the four corners of the earth. Well, the four corners of the earth, like we all know that that has to be metaphorical because the, the earth is not a square. Okay? In verse 14, it talks about them washing their robes in blood to make them white. Every person in here knows that you can't accomplish that by washing clothes in blood. <laughs> it speaks in verse 15 of uh, them being in his temple, serving him. In Revelation 21 and verse 22, John later says there is no temple because God and the Lamb are the, are the, the light of the, of the heavens and the new earth. So when we hear all this language, right away we have to think well if the four corners aren't literal you can't wash your clothes in blood and make them white there's no temple we have to say is not the 144,000 speaking to something different and not to be taken literally as well again we're to be thinking about the spiritual truths that that number is trying to convey and hopefully i can do a good job of that this morning also remember how John has already seeked to help us understand Revelation already in terms of a literary technique he uses. John's pattern. Do you remember my McDonald's illustration? I had you close your eyes and I said, I want to picture a, a fast food chain with a big giant M gleaming like the sun and I showed you a Tim Hortons coffee cup. I was doing that to say they're speaking about the same entity from a different perspective. Well, John has already done this twice before chapter seven. In chapter seven, in chapter one and verse 10, he heard behind him a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. In chapter one and verse 12, when he turned around and looked, he saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of one was like a son of man. 
Both pictures were speaking of Jesus. What he heard and what he saw was Jesus. They both are pointing to the same reality from two different perspectives. In John chapter 5 and verse 5, one of the elders said to John, Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. That's what he heard. When he turned around and saw him in 5 and 6, he saw between the thrones and the elders a lamb standing of a slain. Both are speaking about Jesus. In chapter 7, this is powerful. He is going to hear the number of those who were sealed, who were 144,000. He's going to turn around in verse 9 and look and see a great multitude from all the tribes and nations of the world, of all different tongues and languages. Church family, like this has to be metaphorical. And using these techniques, you have to look, we have to discover the truths together and say this, is, he's speaking to things beyond just the literal understanding of these verses. And so we are to going to discover in these question marks today, what are the parallels? Who are these people? And what is he trying to say? The third thing I want to say by way of introduction is that to remember again and again and again, you have to first look at the first century lens before you come to Okotoks. Apply everything in Revelation to, through their eyes and their circumstances before you come to ours. This way you get yourself in way less trouble when understanding the letter. It wasn't originally written for us. It was to them facing specific issues and problems. And because of their relationship with Jesus, they were being battered and beat down by the Roman Empire. Chapter 7, then, is written to provide assurance and comfort to those believers, knowing that God was going to stand victorious on their behalf, and as a result of his victory for them, they would be able to be in God's presence. This, is a, this chapter is about assuring them, bringing comfort to them. To fail to recognize that also puts us on the wrong foot when coming to understanding this chapter. Okay, so let's dive in. Let's read verse 1 and 3. 1 through 3. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on the, any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. In the opening vision, uh, we're introduced here to four angels standing on four corners, holding back four winds. Again, we're not to see this as being a literal understanding. He's not trying to throw another curveball into the whole flat earth, round earth debate by saying the world has four corners and it's actually square. <laughs> um, but really, the key here is what the four winds represent. The four winds represent and what the angels are doing with the four winds. The four winds, obviously, within the context of chapter six and moving forward, represent God's judgments that were to be poured out that we read last week. So the four winds are now conveyed as the judgments from chapter six, and now they've been told to hold back on these judgments. They've been hold, told to hold back, to be temporarily suspended because something else has to occur first. And he describes this event as 
not harming the earth or the trees or the sea until the sealing of the bondservants of God happens on their foreheads. Now, this notion of sealing we've talked about before. A seal represents a stamp of ownership. It's a mark of authenticity. And it has to do really with personal belonging. Right? So a king will contain a scroll with decrees on it. And when he puts a seal on it, everyone knows when they receive that scroll and see that, that seal that that belongs to king so-and-so. And these decrees belong to so-and-so. And so when God was sitting on the throne in, in chapter 4, he also, or chapter 5, he had a scroll with seals on it that no one could open. Again, a, a, an understanding of divine ownership, personal belonging. Now, this idea of belonging and ownership has a massive place in Revelation. It forms a massive theme in Revelation. And we're going to come to this over and over going on, going forward here on in. But I want to show you this. In Revelation 22 and 3, 4, look at the, what the seal represents here. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his, his bond servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. So in here it says, seal the bondservants of God and put it on their foreheads. Here in chapter 22, he calls the seal his name. 14, 1 and 2, the 144,000 appear again. He says, then I looked and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. So now the name of Jesus and the name of God on the 144,000 is there. So the seal is to be understood of the name of the Father, the name of the Son, marked on a, on a believer's, um, over a believer's life. And again, it's literal. It's not stamped there with a big sticker. So back to ownership, though. There's another place you can be owned by and another person you can belong to in Revelation, outside of God and the Lamb. In Revelation 13 and 16 and 17, one of the most misunderstood chapters in all of the Bible about the mark of the beast the beast here, he says that the beast causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand and on their foreheads. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark. So again, start thinking differently about Revelation 13. We don't expect believers to have a mark with Jesus written on our foreheads, do we? So we will not have the mark of the beast written on our foreheads either or on our right hand. It has to do with who you belong to, who owns you, where does your allegiance lie? Who do you serve? Where do you line up with in life and beliefs? Who, who, who marks your identity? Is it in Christ or is it in the world? That's the understanding from Revelation. And so it's powerful because in Ephesians 1 and 13, we learn something that the mark of ownership is based on one's belief. It's it's, the ownership is based on one's belief. He says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. It's the same word, seal, in both places in Revelation and Ephesians 13, the promised Holy Spirit. So the reason why they're going to seal the bondservants is they've already placed their faith in him. And so now judgment's not to fall on them because they've already put their faith in him. And this is the context of the first three verses. It's actually beautiful. Revelation is beautiful when you start to put the nuances together. So Revelation 7 then, back to this idea of sealing then, is 
This is God's divine commitment that his people will not experience the wrath to come when he comes to judge the unbelieving world because of their faith in him. Now, an important theme emerges then. Subject to persecution from the unbelieving world? Yes. We learned that in seal number five. The martyrs crying out, how long? How long? And God says, there's more to come. So subject to persecution, yes. Subject to God's judgment over the unbelieving world and feel the effects of that? No. You are protected in that time. Isn't that the timeline I went through with you? In, in the, remember I did the timeline here on Thessalonians and Corinthians? When he comes in the second coming to judge the world, he protects us. He protects us and he pours fire out to, to burn up the earth and its works. And then after he judges the, the world, we reign with him in a new heavens and new earth. Now, no doubt he is thinking here about uh, Old Testament language and this distinction that happened in the 10 plagues amongst Egypt and so on. Remember in Egypt, God made a distinction between Israel and, the Isra- and Egypt in terms of like who was to be judged by the plagues and who was to be spared from them. As, a, as God's judgment was pouring out in, the, in Exodus, Israel was not touched, but Egypt was. But what marked them out? So they wouldn't be touched, the blood of the lamb. <laughs> The blood of the lamb. By faith, they applied the blood, not touched by God's judgment. Everyone else is on this earth. Now we go to Revelation. I will seal the bondservants of God. I will, because you've believed in me and put your faith in the blood of the lamb, I will mark you out. I will seal you and protect you when I come to judge the world. So, bondservant, the, the bondservants of God are who are sealed and who can stand. So why does John go into this language in chapter in verses four through eight and make it so confusing? All right. Like I said, Fee worded it well when he said this is a subject to unfortunate interpretation. If you're a JW, you believe the 144,000 is a reference to a special group of individuals who will receive a spiritual body and you'll have the privilege of being a co-reign or co-reigning with Christ uh, when he comes. And the, from verse 9 on, the great multitude are those who don't receive a spiritual body, don't get to reign with Christ, but live in fleshly bodies on this earth. Many within the Christian community, and this was me included up to about a year and a half ago, uh, believe that this was to be taken literally and understood as 144,000 Jews from each tribe of the Israel who in the time of the tribulation, this seven-year period, is going to become converts to Jesus Christ. And in their conversion, they are going to start being evangelists to the whole world. And they are going to lead many, many people to Christ. And the verse nine forward, the great multitude are the results of their efforts. These represent the martyred Christians that came from these Jewish evangelists. That is pervasive teaching in the Western church. And that is very much what I believe. And that's, yeah, that's, that's a very strong theological stance on that. But I want to show you why I don't believe that can be possible from this text. If we were going to take this literally, we've got a little bit of a problem right off the cuff. First of all, in the actual naming of these tribes, it is unique to any other list in the Old Testament. 
The Old Testament lists the tribe of Israel no less than 18 times. Not one list in the Old Testament is identical to this list. What's the difference? There are tribes missing here and tribes added here that aren't in the Old Testament. Most notably, actually, let me show you uh, before we get into this, the uh, typical list, Reuben, Simeon, Asher, Dan, Ephraim, Gad, Issachar, Manasseh, Naphtali, Zebulun, Judah, and Benjamin. Those are the typical 12. They're the ones that got the land when they went into, into uh, uh, Canaan. Let's look at the, our list now in Revelation. You'll notice that the tribe of Dan is completely missing in our list. He's not there. You'll also notice that Ephraim is completely missing. He's not there. Instead, Joseph, his father, is standing in his place. So Dan, so two tribes are completely vacant from the list. And the key there, it says in verse uh, 4, he's going to seal 12,000 from every tribe. Every tribe. And yet two are missing. So right off the cuff, you're, you're to be thinking, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> right? If you believe it to be literal Jews from 12,000 uh, 12, from each tribe, you've got a problem right off the cuff. Third issue, or another issue I should say, is that Judah heads the list. Judah heads the list. He's first on the, first on the docket. No other place in the Old Testament that I could find does Judah head the list. Reuben does, the oldest brother. So John is making you think, why Judah? Why is he at the front? Now, I'm going to give you a suggestion. I don't know for sure, but I'm going to give him a suggestion, and I might change again a little bit or add a nuance to it in the future. But here's what I would say. Um, no, actually, you know what? Well, I'll just say it now. Jesus, uh, we know in verse chapter 5, verse 5, is from the Lion of Judah. Lion of Judah. This represents God's people. It would make sense then that the Lion of Judah, the tribe that Jesus is from, heads the list for God's family. <laughs> if it was all about Jesus and it's all about him and being the Lion of Judah, it would make sense that he is at the front of God's earthly tribe or heavenly tribe as to come in the future. But really what John is doing is he's kind of making you kind of cock your head at the list, you know, like that. You know when you blow, make a funny sound and, and a dog does this? You know, when the high pitch squeal, they turn their head and look at you when you make a weird sound? John wants you to go like this, like when you read the list. It's Israel with a twist. And so you're to come to this going, well, what are you trying to teach me about this list? Because it can't make sense. Well, how do we interpret this? Let's go back to our, our, our interpretive skills we've learned so far and the symbolic use of numbers. 12, we've already discovered, is, represents the people of God. It's the people of God and the complete number of the people of God. In Revelation 21, we're going to see later on the new Jerusalem, the heavens coming, and 12 tribes represented there of the old covenant and 12 apostles representing the new. So it's like the completeness of the Old Testament covenant people and the New Testament covenant people. 12 times 12 is 144. How about the thousand? A thousand in the Old Testament is always used to describe an immeasurable, huge number. Let me read Psalm 50, verse 10. 
This is God speaking. For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. So, not you know, me being cheeky, God, do you own the cattle on the, the thousand and second and third and fourth hill? <laughs> He's like, what are you doing, Andrew? You're not, you're not supposed to read it that way. You're supposed to understand that I own everything in creation. Everything in creation is under my control. Oh, okay, I get it now, Lord. Deuteronomy 7, 9, he says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is faithful, who keeps his kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Again, God, are you saying you're not faithful beyond the thousandth generation? He'd say, no, Andrew, you've missed it. I'm just saying that I'm immeasurably faithful. Okay? So I could go on. I could spend an hour just going over the thousand references about what God says about himself. <laughs> just one after the other after the other. So, again, a thousand is an immeasurable number. Twelve is the people of God in completeness. He's saying this. This 12 times 12 times 1,000, it represents the immeasurable yet complete number of God's people. That's what it represents. Beautiful. Consider also the symbolic use of the Old Testament beyond the numbers that John may be using here. I learned this in my studies, but the way the tribes are organized and the way they're numbered points to a military census. A military census. In numbers, um, they were arranged and counted for war. So look at this in Numbers 1, 3 and 5. The Lord said to Moses, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, which he's doing here, uh, one by one. You are to count according to their divisions of all the men in Israel who are 20 years old and more who are able to serve in the army. So Number, you know, basically take a census, number them who can serve in war. I love this in Numbers 31. Moses puts this into practice. So Moses said to the people, arm some of your, your men to go to war against the Midianites so that they may carry out the Lord's vengeance on them. Send into a battle a thousand men from each of the tribes of Israel. So 12,000 men armed for battle. A thousand from each tribe were supplied from the clans of Israel. 12,000 or armed from each of the tribes. David in 1 Chronicles 27 and verse one does the same thing. This is a list of the Israelites, heads of families, commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds and their officers who served in all the king, who served the king and all that concerned the army divisions that were on duty month by month throughout the year. Each division consisted of 24,000 men. 12 plus 12 is 24. Multiples of 12, multiples of 12, all in relation to war, war, war. This is awesome. This is awesome. Join, John has made it clear to us throughout the whole revelation so far. As a believer, you're involved in holy war. That's the letter to the seven churches. I've saved you, but you're compromising. Turn back to me over, so you can overcome and inherit, the, the, the inherit glory. It's a battle. It's a spiritual battle, against, not against flesh and blood, but the spiritual principalities of the air, Ephesians says. All Christians are involved in holy war, and the devil and, and, his, and the unbelieving world wants to wear you down and make you like, walk away from Christ. And the whole letter of Revelation is saying, don't persevere, don't compromise, stay strong. God will reward you greatly. And so this list now not only represents the God's complete people, 
followers of Jesus and, and everyone else throughout history, it's, it's, it's re a representation of Christians at war. Christians at war. And he's taking a census and he says, we have a complete immeasurable number. That's beautiful. So, what we have here in the first panel, if you will, we've heard, we've seen, or we've heard what John heard, <laughs> or we've seen what John heard, I don't know if we heard that, <laughs> but he's heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, and now we know it, it represents the entirety of God's people protected at the time of judgment, consistent with our timeline. When he comes, he will, it says, bring us into the air and protect us as he hands out judgment on this earth. Back to like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, protected while in the furnace, while everyone else around them burned. So therefore, if this is the issue, then we should expect to see the entirety of God's people in panel number two. The question is, what's the perspective we're to view them through? Protected on this side, it's going to, what's, the, what's the nuance on the other panel? Well, let's read it. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This panel clearly reinforces everything we've just learned. It has to do, once again, with the complete number of God's people and the number here, he says, is, new, is immeasurable, a great multitude which no one can count. And again, in terms of being beyond the tribes of Israel, very clear. He says they came from every nation and from all peoples and tongues, and they're all standing before the throne. John is telling us here, friends, it's not two different groups of people. It's the same group of people from different perspectives. And I love the picture here. They're standing in the presence of Jesus, clothed in victory. The white robes we've seen before in Sardis in chapter three and verse five, Jesus said to the, Sar the people from Sardis, if you overcome, you'll be clothed in white robes, a picture of purity, holiness, victory for persevering with Christ. Palm branches, of course, another sign of victory you remember Jesus when he entered into Jerusalem on the donkey? The people were waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, which means God saves. Palm branches to say, the Messiah's come, we've got victory, God has saved us. Now from Rome <laughs> in their context, right? But I love it. Look at the parallel in our verse, in verse uh, 10. Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The believers who are alive when all this goes down, and even them in terms of the promise that they're going to receive, 
are going to be crying out, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for saving us. Beautiful picture. So it kind of gets a little interesting now in verse 13. There's this kind of rhetorical question in this conversation between John and one of the elders. And so let's read it together. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, those are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. This section of scripture made me scratch my head for a few days. And so this is the part that I may have to revisit in the later in later dates. But let me try to see if I can explain it the way I understand it now. And um, again, capture the big picture if I miss the, new, the small nuances. When the elder, of course, sees this great multitude and from every nation and tribes and dressed in white, he, he asks a rhetorical question like, who are these people, right? And John says, well, you, or the elder, actually, the elder actually knows the answer to the question. But he describes them as coming out of the great tribulation, the great tribulation. Now, again, this is subject to much debate as to what this is referring to. And, uh, but if you remember in chapter six and verse 17, we can get the timing of this. When they asked the question, who is able to stand? This was occurring at the second coming of Jesus when he was pouring wrath in this world. So the great tribulation then is most likely then, or it must be, I should say, is a reference to the time just before the coming of Christ. Just before the coming of Christ. Now, how long this time is, is not mentioned here. But we know it's a time that has to exist before Jesus comes back because they've come out of it. But what's important about this is the reference to them coming out of it. You see, prior to this, I believed that everyone in this list who came out of the tribulation was martyred, was martyred. But that can't, be the, that can't be the case. If God's protected them and sealed them from facing his wrath, how do they come out of the great tribulation? Not through martyrdom. They come out because they, God's judging the world now. They come out because they're protected by him, and they come out because of God's rescue. God rescues them. That's the first Thessalonians four. He's going to come. He will like a voice, like a, like a trumpet, and we will rise and, and come and be with him in the air. The dead first and the alive second. So in terms of coming out of the tribulation, you don't come out of it by dying. You come out of it because of God's rescue. Your, your life is preserved to this whole passage. Who will be able to stand? We will. So it's a beautiful uh, illustration here of, again, referring back to the same group through the entire chapter. And so what's the most important, I think, for us here, though, is the reason for why they can stand before God and why they come out of it. It says they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And it's for this reason they are before the throne. It's for that reason. Again, interesting imagery, right? Because we know the blood can't make things white. But here it says that it does. The symbolism in this passage could go one of two ways. 
And depending who you talk to and who you listen to, it can go, you'll hear both. So I'll just present both options. Many people believe that the washing of the robes in the blood is a reference to being cleansed from sin, right? So if you wash your robes in the blood of the lamb, it's this idea that you have by faith put your trust in him and you've been cleansed from sin and you've been forgiven of sin. And so your ability to stand before God has been won by the sacrificial death of Christ. Others believe that to wash your robe in blood is actually a way of showing that you've identified with him in death. You've identified with him in death. So you've been willing to be persecuted for his namesake and walk the path that Jesus walked. Perhaps John had both in mind, but here's the main point. The reason why they came out of the tribulation and did not receive God's judgment was because they had aligned themselves with him earlier on. And they were proud to identify with him in life and death. Proud to identify him with him in the need for forgiveness. That apart from themselves, they, or that apart from him, they could not save themselves. Or it could be as well that they identified with him and that they continued to be obedient to him and his cause, no matter what the circumstances. But we learn an important lesson in all this. Because what we see in here is the inclusivity and the exclusivity of Jesus. Here's the inclusivity. He says here that he has offered basically salvation to people from every nation, every tribe, every people and every tongue. So inclusive in terms of the offer of forgiveness and the offer of relationship, but not inclusive of all morality based on every tribe and every tongue and every belief system. We see him in chapter six judging judging the unbelieving world for rejection of him. And the reason why these, they came out of the tribulation, these believers, is because they identified with him in his way of life, in his morality, and his belief systems. So again, we, in our culture today, we've got this all messed up, especially the Western church is kind of compromising a lot in these areas where we believe that inclusivity means acceptance of everyone based on their beliefs as well and any lifestyle they choose to adopt. That's not the message of the gospel. Jesus died because he was, he was exclusive of all religious beliefs and ideas of morality. He was put on the cross because he actually told a hard line in terms of what is truth. And so this is, I think, an important thing not to miss from here. We'll finish with this, though, and say that uh, there were rich rewards there were rich rewards for those who are willing to identify with Jesus. And we pick these up in 15 and 16. He says, for this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits in the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb is in the center of the throne and he will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. All of this language, again, borrowed from the Old Testament. This idea of tabernacle goes back to Exodus, right? The, the, the tabernacle was built in the wilderness and God's presence was there within it. Again, the tabernacle is a symbol of protection and security and presence of God. But there's also a promise of relief from all sorts of uh, trauma and effects from this world. And it's all borrowed from Isaiah 49 and 25. Let me show you this to you. It's basically ver verbatim. 
they will, in Isaiah 49.10, he says this, they will, no long, they will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them, and he will guide them to springs of water. Basically, verbatim quote. Uh, Isaiah 25 and verse 8, he will swallow up death for all time. The Lord God will wipe tears away from all the faces. He will remove the reproach of the people from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So again, really, in our language, in our context, physical and emotional pain removed. You know, no hunger, no thirst, no sunstroke, no tears, and so on. And so again, the promise of tremendous reward for those who persevere right up to his second coming. And if we're around when he comes, then God will protect us and rescue us. So let's end with a final slide. If the first thing that God heard, or John heard, was the 144,000, and it represented the entirety of God's people protected, when he saw the great multitude, it represented the entirety of God's people rescued and rewarded. Rescued from the tribulation and rewarded. I know there's a lot more that could be said, but uh, I think we've probably said enough. <laughs> Let me just lead you with some uh, lessons. Although I should say this maybe before the lessons, remember now to go back to the first century, think of the comfort this would bring. You're being battered by the state and you're going through persecution like all the time and there's more to come. And you wonder if God's ever gonna bring judgment and God says, yeah, I am. It's going to come to an end. It's going to come to an end. And when it does, you will not face my wrath. You've been facing wrath long enough from the believing world, unbelieving world. But when I come, you won't face it. I will protect you. I will rescue you. And I will reward you. What a tremendous word to help struggling believers persevere in the midst of trial. So who can stand? All of God's people throughout the ages. Lesson number one. Sound like a broken record, but I have to say it again. Revelation chapter seven is a great reminder that we are not to interpret the letter literally, but are to look for the deep spiritual truths contained within its images, numbers, and symbols. Four corners, every tribe, washed in the blood, the temple, 144,000. This is why we all end up in so much trouble in revelation and in interpretation, because we get ourselves into all sorts of conundrums when we take everything verbatim. And I have to admit, not everything is totally clear, even within the symbolism. But as we take a closer look, I think we can get more of the truths. And as time goes on, we might change nuances on things, but I think we'll still maintain the big picture. Lesson number two, as believers, we need to remember that although a divine promise exists for our protection when God judges the world, the same assurance is not given to us in regards to persecution. In, chapter, in seal number five, right? Seal number five, he says in chapter six, they're crying out basically, when are you going to avenge our blood? When are you going to avenge our blood? When are you going to do this, God? Right? And he says basically, um, you're going to have to wait a little longer. There's more to come. There's more to come. And the end scene here 
is when he comes to judge on the final moments. But the, the Christians are going to have to endure and face persecution, but he will rescue in the end. And it makes sense. We're in holy war. Right from the days of Cain and Abel to the end, we will be in holy war. Hence the focus on rewards. Hence the focus on rewards. And so again, there's this pull on our lives, right? You can, there's, this, there's this pull. Like those of you who are marked by Christ and sealed in him, there's, a, there's another mark that wants to take hold of your life. It's the mark of the beast. It's the mark of the beast. And it's going to promise relief right now in the short term. And John's message is, yeah, it might provide relief in the short term, but you're going to give up eternity because of it. So take his mark now and stand strong. His mark seems, the, the, the Satan's mark is advantageous in this world. It will not be advantageous in the world to come. So stand strong. Lesson number three, while Jesus is inclusive of all people in terms of his offer of salvation, he is not inclusive of all people in terms of their understanding of truth and how that truth is to be lived out. Our Western church, sadly, is compromising in this understanding. And, they, and, we, and I have this saying, I don't know if I made it up or I've heard it from somewhere else, but uh, you know, we, we always have this saying in the church, like, come as, Jesus says, come as you are. But I add a second line to it. He says, come as you are, but not stay as you are. Come as you are and let me change you. We've got work to do. And the way you're living is not thinking like God. And so we've got work to do. Come as you are and I will change you. You can't stay as you are. You can't come to Genesis house and stay as you are. I can't preach to you and stay as I am. It's not sufficient for the Lord. We've got work to do but we will be rewarded. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks. And uh, your word is so rich and we can't believe how rich it is until we really dive in and get our hands, and, hands dirty and our eyes blurry. And so we thank you, Lord, for the truths you have contained in here. I ask, Lord, that, um, you know, Roger Duick brought up a really good question. It's a question that I've been struggling with all week and uh, still don't, aren't fully confident in, in the answer to that. So I just, I just ask that you could bring me clarity as time goes on and we study this book more. And if, if there's any unclear things to the, our church congregation, that you'd also bring things and bring them into focus and make them more clear for them as well. Lord, we're, we're de uh, desperate to know your truth and, and how to apply it. And so when the Waters are muddy. It sometimes can be frustrating. So I just ask your Holy Spirit to go ahead of us, and guide us, and lead us. Thank you again for this rich portion of Scripture, and may it impact our lives from this day forward. In Christ's name, amen.